Hi, this is Time Capsule, episode 194, and I'm Tony Tolado. Hey, this is James Marsters on Sci-Fi Talk with Tony Tolado. Hello, this is Michael Emerson of Law. I'm Peter Waller. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton. I'm Michael Cerverus, the observer from Fringe. Hi, this is Miracle Laurie from Joss Whedon's Dollhouse. Hi, this is Ryan Robin. This is Ben Browder from Farscape. Hi, this is Jane Espenson. Hi, I'm Brad Dourif. Hi, I'm George Decay, and I listen to Sci-Fi Talk. Insidious 3 opens this weekend. Lee Wannell is the director and screenwriter on the project. So Insidious Chapter 3 uh, is actually a prequel. I guess the, the title Chapter 3 would give evidence that it's a continuation, but it's actually not. It's a, uh, a journey back in time. It's set a few years before the first film. And that was just a really interesting idea to me to explore that time. You know, uh, as anyone who's seen the first two films knows, the character of Elise, played by Lin Shay, is is dead. She's been killed. And I loved that character so much and really wanted to explore her background more. And I knew that I couldn't really do that with her as a ghost. And so I felt like the the best way to, to kind of dive into her character was to go back in time and see what she was like before the film. And the more I was writing the script, the more interesting that idea became. Look for Insidious 3 at a theater near you. Interesting series. I like the idea of the prequel, too. I think that works for me. The anticipated film of the month just might be Jurassic World. From the Paris premiere, here is producer Frank Marshall. And Stephen's new idea about having the theme park fully realized uh, was really kind of the anchor and the key to this story. And so... Um, We've been pursuing that script and that story, and uh, and then to find someone as enthusiastic and knowledgeable about the first three movies as Colin has been uh, was a real gift for us. So I think uh, having Colin's youthful enthusiasm and and Stephen's you know sagely wise storytelling uh, to be there to support Colin has been really great. Well, I think Colin's. Uh, Colin's vision for the movie was that it was very real, that the theme park is real, it exists. So we went to great lengths to create a world that was real and to build the sets and to go to Hawaii again, to the real jungle and create as much real um, environments as we could for the actors, which also helps them, I always believe. So it's not a green screen atmosphere, it's a real atmosphere. And I think that makes it much more believable. A lot of people are coming to this movie to see the dinosaurs and we have lots of great ones. We have ones that you're familiar with from the first movies and we have some new ones. Um, the new ones are particularly exciting because one of them is a genetically designed uh, new dinosaur, which we're calling the Indominus Rex. And Indominus is really, turns out to be something that's kind of exciting and then gets completely out of control. Jurassic World opens on June 12th. Look for more on future episodes of Time Capsule. Poultrygeist is a reboot of the 80s movies. The producing team is headed by Sam Raimi, who chose director Glenn Keenan. I started to, I started to really think about what it would take for me to dare go up against a film that had such a purity of, of, of vision. And I... I began to think about the problem of the poltergeist, the idea of a group of spirits who were so 
so forgotten, so, so abandoned, uh, so frustrated that they were able to channel that, that specific energy into this really heinous act of taking a child from its family to, to allow themselves a, a chance to, to have a sort of final, final release. This story is, is the story of the Bowen family who are at a crossroads. They've become accustomed to a certain lifestyle, a certain slice of the American dream that's gotten just a little bit further away from them in the last few years. And uh, as we meet them, they're downgrading their life, their expenses, and they're moving into a house that's charming, but a little bit less than, than what they're used to. Um, and, and very quickly through the eyes of their, their young son, Griffin, we begin to get a sense that uh, there is something off in this place. There is a, there's a feeling, there's an energy, uh, there's a mood that begins to raise the hairs on the back of his neck. Look for Poltergeist at a theater near you. The Geek Initiative is still very young, and really in its alpha phase, you might say. On the latest Everything Geek, I discussed it with Justin Cavender of GeekLegacy.com and Tim Byers of TheFullBleed.net, who, along with uh, Rod Faulkner of TheSeventhMatrix.com, are my co-founders of this venture. Let's listen as I kick off the discussion. We all worked together at San Diego Comic-Con uh, this past uh, year, and it was really the first time we all kind of teamed up. And uh, I just thought it would be cool to make it something a little bit more permanent. And it's the Geek Initiative. I, in a nutshell, it's kind of like the Avengers, where we all come together and really do something special, but we also have our own thing going on as well. And then to launch things off, we have the uh, Geek Initiative at connectpal.com. And this is actually a premium site. And what we are featuring there is our content all combined in one place. It'll have podcasts, videos, and also in PDF forms, some of the interviews we've had. Uh, great stuff already. Um, and I'll let the guys talk about a little bit uh, more about their stuff. Uh, I, I just posted all of my uh, Walking Dead transcripts from and podcast interviews from San Diego Comic-Con and also my Tribeca Film Festival uh, pictures as well. So, uh, so Justin, talk about um, what you guys have on there on, on the Geek Initiative uh, premium site. Absolutely. Um, we, a while ago, we had a crazy nerd off as to which Indiana Jones film was the best. And uh, I thought that was a great idea to include that. Uh, we're going to be pumping out a lot of individual uh, podcasts specifically for uh, the Geek Initiative. Uh, Dave, Randy, and I have the craziest conversations, and we decided that we're just going to start recording them so everyone can be a part of them. Uh, anyone that listens to the Geek Legacy podcast knows that Randy throws out a crazy list for us each week. Yeah. And, um, people that subscribe to the show can submit their own list that we'll be happy to to read on the show, or you can even come on the show and read your own list, and we can either, you know, we'll give some, well, Dave can always defend your list if you want, so you don't have to worry about being berated on how horrible your list is. If it's a top 10, top 5, whatever, we're happy to give you a platform to, to share your opinion. Uh, this is all about our subscribers, and we want to make it that way. We want to tailor our shows to you guys, so whatever it is that you want, 
We will do. If you want Randy to dance like a little monkey, we'll make him dance like a monkey. <laughs> I like it. I yeah. Like it. All right, Tim. Uh, Tim, you actually, uh, it actually segues into one of the things we're going to talk about is the Marvel and DC scorecards. That's, all, that's also in the Geek Initiative uh, on, on ConnectPal. Right. Yeah, I uploaded both spreadsheets. So I keep a public version of the uh, of both the Marvel and DC movie report, and that has some basic data. Like I put the uh, box office profitability up there. So I'm like I'm actively tracking Age of Ultron, and this week, in fact, it, it will be box office profitable. But for the subscribers that go into the Geek Initiative, the there is other stuff there, including the breakdown. So for example, if you want to see how Fox movies have done. It's not available on the public site, but if you want to see how Fox has performed as a percentage of the entire Marvel movie universe ever, I have that in there for subscribers. I have, you know, all the franchise breakdowns. I have uh, the studios. Subscribers get the unfettered access to everything, uh, but there is, like, a, a public teaser. In addition to that, like, I want to do other, you know, subscriber exclusives, so I've got my YouTube channel, and I'll be doing uh, YouTube videos that are subscriber only. Uh, and, and ones that do go public, I'll do subscriber early access. So I'll probably be doing some, some custom hangouts uh, just to take questions from members. What Justin said, you know, it's all about the members. So if there's anything, requests, I will take them. I also chime in. The premium uh, site will adapt to what our subscribers want, and there's going to be much more uh, to come for sure. The site is at connectpal.com slash the geek initiative, all one word. I certainly hope uh, you'll join us. There'll be a lot of really cool things going on. It's really something that will evolve and we'll be adding more sites too. Uh, so stay tuned. Falling Skies returns on June 28th. I recently spoke to Colin Cunningham about the final season. But I will, I will say this, man. This really blew me away. And it's not necessarily specific to story or anything, but it was like, mm -hmm. I don't know, like two months, three months after we finished the show. Got a call from DreamWorks. From those, from these two guys, the two producers of, of DreamWorks that, that produced the show. And I, for a second, I thought I was in trouble. I was like, oh my God, why, why are they calling me? Cause it, and it's so far after the fact. And I thought, oh wait, it couldn't be calling about the show because it's so far gone. Anyway, they just called to say thank you. Wow. That's they called nice. me to say thank you. I mean, talk about something so incredibly unnecessarily, unnecessary, but so incredibly professional. They simply just called to say, hey man, thanks. Yeah. And I thought, man, that's, that is a class act. That's just a class act. And that's, that's the way, it's it, it's been and Michael Wright, who really shepherded the show from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, God, he deserves he deserves so much credit, and he was just such a great guy, and he looked out for everybody, and and he was just and we met some really really great people, man. But um, but Pope Pope this year definitely takes um, let's say a, a, the darkest turn he ever has. Oh, cool. It's yeah, no, without a doubt, if Pope becomes darker and stranger than we've ever ever seen him. Nice. And um, <laughs> if there was ever ever any animosity against Tom Mason, it explodes in season five. No, that's great. Look for Falling Skies on June 28th. Fear the Walking Dead will premiere this summer. The spinoff series will serve as a prequel to the popular series. At last year's San Diego Comic-Con, Robert Kirkman said everything so far is going according to plan. 
We didn't say anything about the spinoff. Uh, I work on the spinoff is concurrent. You know, we're still you know working very hard. Uh, uh, I'm doing something with it almost every day, uh, and uh, you know it's just uh, it, you know it's taken it's taken uh, it's taken a while, but it's not taking longer than we had anticipated. Like we know what we're doing, and we have uh, we have a plan in place, and we're hoping to have some news very soon. And uh, I, I'm very excited. It's going to be really cool. Really looking forward to that one. That's going to be an interesting. Uh prequel. I, I can't wait to see it. Good cast so far. Spotlight has a look at the film Gaming in Color, which chronicles the rise of gay gaming, or as director Philip Jones refers to it, as queer gaming. Here is part of my conversation with the director. Philip, uh, how did you get the idea to, to, uh, to do this movie? Um, it actually wasn't uh, my original conception. It was a film that was going to be directed and handled by other people, professional filmmakers, actually, who were uh, aware of the GamerX convention um, back in 2013 because it was getting a lot of press there as the first one, and they decided that they wanted to make a documentary about it. Um, I wasn't an employee of Midboss at that time, but eventually those filmmakers had dropped the project, um, and it was sort of closely associated with the convention, which is how I started in the company. Um, and we decided that we didn't want to... Uh, let the let the project fail and just become nothing. So we decided to take it under our own wing, and uh, we built it up from however much we had at that point. And uh, you know, we're all in, involved in this community, and we knew what would uh, make sense to do for the film, and we had connections. So uh, none of us have any filmmaking background, but uh, we had enough knowledge and and awareness and and uh, personal stake in the, in the project to see it through to completion. And how long did it take you to get all the interviews and to to do the film itself? We filmed for about a year, well wow. in all, maybe a little less than that. When when we first got the project, all that had been filmed at that point was the GamerX convention. Okay. So we had a lot of good B-roll, and there was you know there was a, a recent topic that you know sort of spawned the film. Mm -hmm. uh, but most of the interviews and 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 talking points we had to come up with from that point on. And we finished in March 2014. And uh, is it um, is it being shown in festivals right now? And is that what, uh, what what the life it has right now? We had a decent festival run back when we first released last April. We have one upcoming screening, um, but we haven't been pushing festivals so much because usually festivals won't accept submissions from films that were completed within the last year. Right. I mean, before a year. But and we did we did have some some festival screenings, and we had a lot of video game conventions and. Uh, even some universities uh, flew us out to screen as well. The way I look at it is, uh, I don't really look at somebody who's gay gaming differently. Like if it's, it really depends on the venue. If you're doing a competitive online game, I just think whatever sex we are, we just naturally are competitive. <laughs> so right. we just kind of go at it that way. Um, what I think is the issue, and I think your film brings it up, is a uh, great example is on. Uh, the Mass Effect game. Now, you can, if you make Shepard a woman, then Shepard, as a woman, can have an affair with another alien creature that's also female. But unfortunately for the male, he's kind of stuck in the in the role. And if anything, your film is alluding to that, that as games are done, there's a whole other community out there that really needs a voice and really needs to be, you know, have a place where they can go where it feels comfortable for them. Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's a lot. There's, it's sort of cyclical, um, the way that, you know, queer people are either not represented in games at all, 
or when they are, it can be very poorly done or even stereotyped. And those sorts of mentalities and attitudes in respect to queer people will be translated to the audience, whether that's something that they receive well or not. So queer people playing those types of games will be aware of this and will, you know, maybe take offense or feel discomfortable or uncomfortable or or feel disrespected, um, but people that aren't queer or don't care about queer people will not notice it and then sort of internalize those messages. So when pe- when queer people say, we want more representation, then, you know, their default standpoint is already, you know, why would you deserve this or why should we change our video games for you, right? Even though queer people have been playing games and been a part of games forever. What's interesting is on television, I know the following had an openly gay lesbian couple. And even on The Walking Dead, there's been, uh, you know, actually they've had a gay character, a male gay character this past season. So you see inroads being done in entertainment. So the people, the people making the decisions are conscious of that market. And right. they're starting to slowly. Why, why do you think gaming is sort of a little lagging behind a bit? Well, I mean, even look at look at Empire. You know, that was the yeah. largest TV show recently. Yeah. And a huge majority of that series is all about, you know, the main character's sexuality and dealing yeah. with that with his career, with his family. Um, and then Orange is the New Black, another huge, huge series that has uh, tons of, of lesbians and also a, a transgender one. Yeah. Um, and her transition is, is focused on. And this is, this is a point that I make all the time is that Queer stories are being explored through television, through film, through literature. There are queer film festivals. There are queer libraries. You know, there are these sorts of avenues that people can take. But for video games, there are not um, mm. these sorts of even even on a smaller scale. The amount of queer video games is very small and hard to find. Um, the ones that have been done well are especially boosted up, so people are sort of aware of them. Um, but they're never in, you know, a, a, a place where the public can really find them. Yeah. I feel like the, the reason behind all of this is the way that games have been marketed um, since the 80s, you know, is that they are the cool new toy for boys and men to enjoy. And, um, you know, if, if there's a scantily clad woman on the cover of the game, then that's going to appeal to that crowd. And that's something that a lot of today's gamers grew up with. And that's, you know, they're used to that and they're comfortable being... Uh, catered to, yeah. and any straying from that feels like they are losing something, right? Yeah, they they have the whole pie, and if you want to give a slice of their pie to somebody else, then they are losing that slice, and that that is a threat to them, right? Yeah, but there's also a lot of women gaming now. That I mean, certainly that's the the biggest. I'm a little older than you are, and and the biggest change I've noticed is how women have been involved. In, in gaming and also fandom, it's a lot more than it's ever been. Uh, right. And certainly the door is there, uh, you know, for the gay community to also be a part of that, too. And 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 you see that they already are at conventions, uh, you know, to some extent. So it, it only makes sense that what you call mainstream, because <laughs> uh, I have a different definition of what I think mainstream should be, but um, and that includes everyone. But uh, you know, it, it, it's it's cool that uh, that that the door is opening, but it's still only just a crack at this point. Right, and I think that the more these issues are discussed and talked about and brought to light, even if they are controversial, you know, even if even if the discussion is 
you know, if you see an article on some right-wing website that's all about, you know, fake girl gamers, at least that is continuing the conversation. Yeah. And I think that a lot of women who play games are tired of these discussions, and that's why they're becoming more and more vocal. Yeah. Um, so when they see things like that, 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 that also gives them the opportunity to stand up and say, maybe this is important to me, and this is something that I want to invest my time in to make better for me and, and for women like me and, you know, marginalized people within these, these gamer subcultures that are not being included or, you know, flat out disrespected. Yeah, I think that, I think that a big part of the, the movement is just to be vocal about it and to, make your own spaces if that's necessary because at least they'll exist. The film is now out on video on demand. Certainly worth a look, especially if you're into gaming. The complete interview will air on Sci-Fi Talk. This is Tony Tolado and this is Time Capsule Episode 194. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Rene Aubergenois. I play shapeshifter Odo on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and you're listening to Sci-Fi Talk. <laughs>